I started to really make a lot of money. I was a six-figure coach telling everyone to live their best life, snorting, you know, Scarface lines of cocaine in my kitchen counter for about three years straight. And so I didn't, I didn't have what people say a rock bottom. It was actually more of a high bottom. Welcome to the New Age Sage Podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Today's guest is Vasavi Kumar. She is a licensed therapist and author. We talk about all things addiction and what it's like to be bipolar. Please like and subscribe. Thank you. Vasavi, welcome on the show. Thanks, Lucas, for having me. Of course. So we were just talking about our, our shared experience having bipolar disorder. So I wanted to start there. Mm-hmm. What's kind of your journey been with that? Where are you at now? How's that going? So I was diagnosed when I was 19 years old. I had just graduated. I, I was a sophomore at Boston University, and it was difficult for me. I grew up in a pretty sheltered house. I'm a first-generation Indian immigrant, and it was pretty uh, conservative, structured, rigid. We didn't get to do a lot as kids, but I always found my way. I always found a way for me to explore and be curious. But when I was diagnosed at 19 years old with bipolar disorder, um, the first thing they did was put me on a cocktail of medication. And I remember gaining like 45 pounds, slowing down, feeling so sedated. I was so sedated and that creative spark that I had was just completely um, kind of dead for a little bit. You know what I mean? But I'm very grateful that I have a curiosity that God has blessed me with that I, you know, I immediately went to the bookstore and I tried to look up like metaphysical reasonings for bipolar disorder. And the best definition that I had found was in this one book called The Tao of Bipolar Disorder. And it said that bipolar disorder is nothing more than the conflict between our higher self and our ego or fear and love, you know, and it's the God within us and the devil within us. It's just the conflict that we have between who we really know we can be and who we think we should be. So where I'm at now, 21 years later, having been on medication, off medication, on and, you know, self-medicating with drugs and alcohol and all that stuff, I celebrated four years of sobriety from cocaine this past Monday, and um, I'm back on medication. Today is, we're recording this today on April 3rd, and I got back on medication April 1st. Um, It took a lot of, I needed a lot of... um, experiences in the past few months for me to realize like, okay, you need some help. I've always felt a little weak. Like one thing that I don't ever want to show people is that I'm weak. Mm -hmm. And I felt like if I got back on meds, then I was weak again. And thankfully I have great people in my life who understand me and just want the best for me. And my mother said to me, you know, you, you work so hard to feel good. Do you really want to keep working this hard to feel good? Or are, are you open to just a little bit of assistance? She's like, I have high blood, you know, I have high blood pressure. I take blood pressure medication, you know, and I and I understand. Like I've had my own resistance around getting help, but like I said to you before we started to, you know, hit record, is that I have a lot of work that I want to do in this world. I feel like I'm I know I'm here for a reason. I didn't go through all the shit that I went through in my life just mm-hmm. to waste it and squander it. And my mind gets in the way sometimes of of just keeping that peace within. So I decided to get back on meds just two days ago. Yeah. Well, there's no shame in it. I yeah. can tell you, Fedler, bipolar, you know, brother right here. I, uh, there's no, there's no shame in it. You know, I, I, yeah. my understanding of it, my experience, my, cause like you, I, mm-hmm. I'm a healthy skeptic. I, I don't yeah. believe almost anything I'm told. Yeah. So when I was told that and I was, I was 21. It's around right. the same age. Yeah. Wow. So three years ago. And I immediately was like, I, I don't believe this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's some neural component to it. I did research on a ton of stuff. And what I came to was, as a kid, I had to split personalities. Mm-hmm. I, you know, 
I didn't get a lot of love for just existing. I had to perform all the time, like a hyper-performance. Whether my mom had some form of Munchausen syndrome, so she only gave me love when I was sick. So I had to, like, perform sickness. My dad only loved me when I was performing, like, academically and, and, like, in that world. So I had to always be on edge and pushing myself and, like, ramping up my nervous system mm -hmm. to be worthy of love. And the opposite of that was, like, this, like, exhaustion from that. Mm -hmm. My body, my nervous system, my mind got used to splitting between, like, hyper-performance, hyper-persona of mm -hmm. myself and being, like, dead from it. Yes. So that, that was my experience. It's definitely, like... There's definitely a neural component to that, mm -hmm. right? It has that um, reflection, but that was kind of my experience. And like you, you know, I I think why it's braver for you to do take medication is that people in, in our space get ego trapped in it. Like, we should know better. Like, all the shit we've learned. Fuck that. Yeah, yeah, so, I, that's yeah. what I, I'm sorry. I, I just had to. Yeah, it's just ahead. like no one can tell anyone what they should do with their body and their mind. Yeah, yeah. And I also think me, you know, like, oh, I should know better than that. It's just another form of bypassing. Like, yeah. I live with myself. I have the mind that I have. I know what I'm dealing with. Yeah. I'm a sovereign being that gets to make that decision. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> you know, I, I hear you. It's it's great. No, no one should, but it's like, you know, it's good on you. So I I, I got off all everything mm -hmm. and to, to try it out. And I, I, I've gotten to a point where I can just identify my awareness and just exist as mm -hmm. I am which is a blessing and a curse, but yeah. it got to a point where I was just noticing myself always kind of down. I had noticed myself like kind of like a brain fog and, and a cloud over me. So I could live with this. And I, I went back on medication, like a relatively low dose, and I just felt like more clear clearness. So mm -hmm. I'm with you. Like I, Are you on meds now? Yeah. Can, can I ask what you're taking? I take lithium. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I can't take lithium because I have a thyroid issue. Yeah. But, so I take Lamictal. And they prescribed me a little bit of hydroxyzine, which is like a mild relaxant. And yeah. I didn't want to take all these medications at once because then you don't know what's working. So I just taking a small dosage of Lamictal. I've been on lithium. That was the first drug. It was the best drug. But then I I developed thyroid issues. I cool. also had underlying thyroid, which made it worse. I really want to say I appreciate what you said that you split off from yourself at a very young age. It, it truly is that conflict. We literally we become bipolar because yeah. this is our real self and we actually split off. And just like you, I did not get praise just for being. I was yeah. the clown growing up. I was the funny one growing up. I could walk into any room and make anyone smile, which I think it's like the blessing of having, the, I don't want to call it a disease or illness, but you know, having this label of being bipolar, I know that one of my greatest gifts is that I know how to turn up the volume. Yeah. You know, I know how to, I can make any room vibrant and lively, you know, yeah. but on the flip, I didn't know how to, I did not know how to just be with not being that way, you know, and yeah. that's where the exhaustion comes in. Yeah. How are you managing the exhaustion now? Do you not notice in yourself, like, that reminding yourself in that moment of when you're ramping up, being mm -hmm. like, oh, I could, you know, get, or do you, is it not like that for you? So... I ramp up when I need to. I like ramping up. I don't, I don't, I like that momentum. I like that drive. I, my number one question that I ask any psychiatrist when they give me medication is, is this going to turn down my flame? Cause I have a fire in me. Yeah. I love that. I, I joke and I say like, you know, when, when I'm like just slightly hypomanic, I'm like, yeah, you know, Vasavi's on, you want her when she's just slightly hypomanic. When I teeter into irritability and just anger and rage, it, it's because I haven't given myself that pause. It's like I'm ramp, 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 and then there's no pause, and then there's the eventual crash. Um, these days, I know when I want to be on and when I don't. So yeah. here, for me, I'm here for a purpose. I'm here to have a conversation with you. I'm here to hopefully help whoever's listening to this right now who may have been diagnosed with any mental illness diagnosis to let them know that, you know, you're not alone. If you want to take meds, you can, but talk to someone. Talk to people who have been through what you're going through so here for me it's a it's appropriate it makes sense for me to 
get, give a little more, you know? Yeah. But then after this, when I'm in my car, I'm like, whoosh. So I really do not take for granted my alone time. Yeah. My I live alone. I'm single. I have a aging golden retriever. It's just me and her. And I really appreciate my solitude and my silence. People often think, because I'm the queen of saying it out loud, that I like to talk. I actually don't. I, I prefer to yeah. not talk, but I, I talk when I need to. And that's the gift that I've given myself. But I do still sometimes see myself where I feel like it's my responsibility to turn up the volume and bring it. I'm like, it's not my responsibility anymore to yeah. do that. Yeah. Take me on the journey of your self-medication, because I think addiction is almost always synonymous with bipolarity. In my experience, I, was also, I, I also used to be a drug addict. Mm-hmm. Um, which I can share my experience. So I'm curious how that happened for you. When did you start self-medicating? What did it look like? And how long did it take you to get over it? So I'll, I, I've done this in therapy many times. It's my timeline. So at 12 years old, I started smoking cigarettes. That's when I believe I like split from the most pure part of me, right? It's like yeah. I thought I had to smoke cigarettes to be well accepted by the cool girls at school. I was never the cool girl, you know? I would... I don't even know what that means to be the cool girl, <laughs> but I was never the cool girl growing up. So I thought in order to be accepted, I needed to be like you. So I started smoking cigarettes at 12. I had my first drink when I was 14. It was a white Russian. It was also, you know, I was 14 years old. I was growing into, you know, I was going through puberty. So I was starting to blossom. It was 14 was the first time that I got real male attention. Mm-hmm. I just had that memory the other day. I was in the shower and I was like, when did I first get addicted to male attention? It was I was 14 years old because uh, my dad had found out. My, I'm, first of all, my father and I are very close. But when I, when he found out that I was smoking cigarettes, he cut me off so quick. I mean, I, I would always sit on my dad's lap. I would always come to him for kisses and hugs. And he would physically just completely say, I don't want to talk to you. So at 14, when I got, when I started getting male attention, uh, and I remember I went to this like Indian function party. There's like 600 people at this party in like Queens, New York. You know, we all just get together. It's like one big Indian convention. The bartender complimented me. He said, I look beautiful. It was the first time a man had given me attention other than my father. He asked what I like to drink something. Now, I know I shouldn't be drinking at 14. Mm-hmm. No one in my family drinks, anything like that. I said, okay. So he made me a white Russian. I had like four or five white Russians that night. At 14 years old, no one should be drinking yeah. <laughs> four or five white Russians. That was the first time I drank my first drink. Um, then the first time I tried marijuana, I was 17. 18, I tried ecstasy for the first time. And then when I went away to college, that's when it that's when I just, I was unhinged. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very smart academically. I wasn't very street smart. I didn't understand. Uh, I, I didn't know that it was okay for me to just say, no, I don't want to be involved in this. But I just kept following the crowd. And so college is where I kept using more ecstasy, smoked a lot of weed, and tried cocaine for the first time. So mm-hmm. co- cocaine was my drug of choice. Cocaine is the drug that really got a hold of me. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> and then when I transferred back home, I had to transfer back home. I was in college at Boston University, transferred back home to Long Island. It was the only time I really listened to my mother. My mother, it was sophomore year of college, and she goes, you're not doing well in school. Uh, I think I think being away is hard for you. I think it's time for you to come home. And I said, yes. I just said yes, because I was sleeping with guys left and right. I wasn't going to class. I was using cocaine a few days a week. It wasn't a problem yet. It, it, like it was in my 30s. In my 30s, it got worse. I transferred back home and still kept doing the same shit. I was still doing the same shit. New environment, same shit, right? Because nothing on the inside had changed. But I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 19. And I remember when I got the diagnosis, I was so relieved. I go, oh, so there's a label to the type of shit that I'm doing. There's a, oh, okay, it makes sense why I'm fucking around. It makes sense why I'm using all these drugs. For me, 
I knew that my actions were not who I was, like sleeping around, being promiscuous, using drugs, missing class, cheating on tests, lying, spending money frivolously, buying three pairs of, four pairs of Pumas in the, in the same color, you know, just different colors, just spending excessively. I was like a classic textbook case. So I felt very relieved when I got the diagnosis. Um, but after that, they put me on a bunch of medication. And this is when I became resistant to Western medicine because they put me on this medication. And anytime I would have a mood, or let's say I was having a bad day, because we have bad days sometimes. Our mind fucks with us sometimes. Let's just say I was emotional. First thing my parents would say is, did you take your meds? Did you take your meds? And that for me felt like the ultimate betrayal. Like, man, I can't just have a, an emotion. You know, you're going to you're gonna say, oh, you must need your meds. So I became very turned off to taking medication because I associated with there's something wrong with me, you know? Um, so I, my relationship to medication has been on and off. I was on medication for about 10 years off, on again, off again. Um, but then, you know, after I got married, I got married when I was 28. I got divorced uh, four years later. And then I got into a rebound relationship. You know, they say when you break up with someone, the best way to get over is to get under them. Worst advice ever. Don't do that. So I got under somebody who ended up being a rebound relationship that lasted way too long. It was for four years. And he was a addict. Mm -hmm. He had just come out of rehab. And I thought, this is a great guy to, this is a guy to date. I didn't know. You know, I think we always say what we want. I said I wanted to find myself. I wanted to learn how to be single after I got divorced. And then just like that, I get this little distraction. It's like God saying like, oh, do you really, do you really want to be alone? Do you really want to get to know yourself? Here's a little distraction. And I got distracted. Um, and that relationship single had handedly destroyed my life. Like four years. I mean, I was this man's sugar mama. I was this man's sex toy. I was this man's everything. And then he was like, you know, you work so hard. We should like celebrate. And so we started off with, you know, one day a week I'd use cocaine. Mm -hmm. And then that became two days a week. And then the, and then I started to really make a lot of money. I was a six-figure coach telling everyone to live their best life, snorting, you know, Scarface lines of cocaine in my kitchen counter mm -hmm. for about three years straight. And so I didn't... I didn't have what people say a rock bottom. It was actually more of a high bottom, you know, because everything was actually looking really great for me on the outside, but inside it was awful. When did it come crashing down? Well, it crashed down so many times. That's the thing. Like I got arrested over and over again. Over and over again. Like in March of 2017, I got arrested for assault. In September of 2017, I had a miscarriage with this guy. Um, I, I was scheduled for an abortion the day before I ended up having a miscarriage. Even then I wasn't like, I want to leave. I should leave this guy. I was just yeah. so stuck. I was I was psychologically hooked on this guy and I was chemically addicted to cocaine. Yeah. So I just I, I could not stop myself, you know, because I was just so in it. Um, and then finally, one day it was beginning of November. No, it was actually November 12th. November 12th, I was using it was like 4 a.m. in the morning. So which is like 5 a.m. on the East Coast. And I was high as a kite. And I heard this voice inside of me that said, Vasavi, text your sister, my older sister. So I texted her and I just said, I need help. Can you come to Austin? Like, I don't ever ask for help. I would yeah. never want my parents to know that this is what I'm doing. My sister and my aunt came um, November 16th and they flew me back to the East Coast. And I went to a state rehab center, Miramont in um, Pennsylvania. And that's the first time I went to rehab. That was a turning point right there. Somewhat. It was somewhat. It was the I'm, first I, evolution of it. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm a thorough learner, so I had to go back to rehab a second yeah. time. But that was the first evolution of it. And even when I was in rehab the first time, I, even though I was physically away from this ex, I didn't think I, this conversation would go there. But here, let's just say it out loud. Even when I was in rehab, I kept calling him mm -hmm. while I was in rehab. I, while I was trying to get healthy, I kept calling this 
this person. What who, do you think it was in you that was so addicted to him? What part of you needed him? What, you, know, you know what I'm saying? I didn't feel like he really loved me. And it really bothers me when I give so much to someone. And like, why don't you love me? Why don't you see me? And I just, that, I didn't feel that reciprocity. And that reciprocity made me work harder. Because that's yeah. just what I did as a kid. Oh, if mom doesn't love me, I'm going to. I'm going to make her love me. If dad is uh, disapproving, what can I do to get his love? I'm, I was very attuned to, I knew what I had to do to get somebody's love. And for him, it was how much more money can I spend on you? How many yeah. more vacations can I take you on? How many more drugs can I bring to the table? And so I lost myself in the process of needing somebody else to love me. When, what point did you realize I can't do that? Or at what point did you realize how to give that stuff to yourself? Like when did you get to a point where you could like feel that you could tolerate a healthy form of love where you didn't have to be giving or putting on because I'm the same way right like my, my past the same way I was addicted to a to woman who I had to like seduce and prove something to which I used to love and now I got to a point where I was like I couldn't care less and it, was yep. like, it was a journey for me so how did you go about that yeah so it, I, I still needed to learn a few more lessons so yeah. I went to rehab in 2017 I was seven months sober and um but I had relapsed seven months into my first time being sober why did you relapse I relapsed because, you know, when I got out of rehab, I came back to Austin. I did sober living. So I did inpatient rehab for three months. I came back to Austin. I lived in sober living with a bunch of women, 15 women, um, for another three months. And I was still with him on and like we were still together. We were still sleeping together and I was sober, but he wasn't. But we tried to make it work. I would take him to meetings with me. I, I would take him to NA meetings, AA meetings, thinking I'm healthy now. I can help him. Yeah. No, don't ever do that. No, like you don't, when you're, when you're healthy, like leave sick people behind, let yeah. them be sick. You know, um, that was very hard for me to do. I felt like I was abandoning him. Um, but then what happened was we, he broke up with me cause he thought I was boring cause I was sober mm -hmm. and, um, I wasn't so, I wasn't boring. I was just like calm and not trying to get into the chaos. You know, when he broke up with me, I relapsed a week later. Um, and, and then I was like, okay, I, I just I just did a slip. I just slipped. It was only one time, but that's not how cocaine works. And that's just not how addiction works. Like you feed the beast, the beast is going to keep wanting more, yeah. right? So I did it once and I was like, it's just a slip. I'm going to be okay. Um, but I kept using it. It was just, it just, I just got hooked right back into it. And then that was in May of 2018. I remember this so clearly. And then in August of 2018, I was high as a kite. So I was using for May. So I relapsed seven months after. And then I'm using, I'm using May, June, July. Once again, life has spiraled out of control, but it's still pretty contained. Nobody knows. It's not five days a week. It's only like four days a week now. You know, in my mind, I justified it because I'm so good at justifying hurting myself, you know. And then I applied. It was like 5, 5 a.m. in the morning up, you know, high as a kite. And I'm like, you know what? I need to go find a job. I need to like be back on television again because I, I did a lot of TV work back in the day. I was a lifestyle expert for like 10 years on TV. Loved being on television. Loved being in front of the camera. It's very natural for me to do that. And so I go, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get a job on television. And this is how powerful we are, okay? I applied for a job to be a co-host of a morning show here in Austin, Texas. I got the job. I got the job. So in my mind, it was like, see, it doesn't matter that you're using drugs. You, you're still powerful. You could still get a job. And so I thought the job was going to save me. Okay, I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to be on TV. I'm going to be a respectful co-host. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to garner the respect from people now because I felt so shitty about myself. Yeah. And so I lied to everyone at my job. This was in 2018. I said, oh, I'm sober. I'm sober. I'm sober. I'm still using it on the weekends. That affected my performance on camera because I knew that I was being incongruent. I literally would stand in front of the camera and have to read prompter. 
And I had a voice in my head that's like, you liar, you liar, you're lying to everybody. Everybody fucking knows that you're lying. You're lying, you fake, you fake. And that messed with me. That messed with my performance. And so I got let go from that job six months into it. And after I got let go from that job, this was now in 2019, I go, still am using and using. And my mom called me and she goes, I need you to take a P-test. She goes, what? She goes, you've been fired from this job. What are you doing? She could tell because she could hear it in my voice. She, she goes, I, I, I. I need you to take a urine test. And I go, how dare you ask me to take a urine test? Even though she, she knew damn well. I said, how dare you ask me to take a urine test? I'm 37 years old. How could you ask me to do that? I was in the kitchen and I was being all like vigilant about it. And she goes, Vasavi, I know when you're lying. And I go, you know what? I got to go. So I hung up. I'm in my kitchen. And I say to myself out loud, I'm so done with this chaos. I cannot do this anymore. So that was the turning point for me. Yeah. Because I didn't go to rehab because I ran out of money. I didn't go to rehab because something like happened or anyone was making me go. I went to rehab in 2019 because I was done with the chaos. It had it had to come from within. No one can make you change. And so I've spent the last four years, so 2019 to now, and I'm still learning and growing, obviously. And it's not even learning and growing. It's just remembering, remembering, remembering. I'm not, there's, for me, it's not like, oh, I'm learning this about myself. It's like, no, I knew this. I just needed to remember it again. So it's been a four-year journey. And here we are today. And when it comes to being open to receiving healthy love. Um, I am now practicing what it feels like for a man to just see me and appreciate me for me. And uh, I have a lot of girlfriends in my life that support me and, you know, they help me with not having to lead with my accomplishments, not having to lead with my successes, thinking that's the only way a guy's going to like me is, oh, do you know I wrote a book? Do you know I'm on the cover of this magazine? Do you know that I was on VH1? Like, I can lift off, list off every single thing, all the reasons why I think you should love me. And then I wonder why you don't love me for me, because I led with my accomplishments, not with my being. Yeah. So that's where I am today. I'm just, I'm open. We'll see. Shoot your shot. <laughs> <laughs> Go for what was the, to my addiction, I could... So I, I personally don't believe in my, it's just like a point of, of conflict or between us, but yeah. I, I don't believe once an addict, always an addict. I agree with you. That's yeah. not a point of conflict. So, so for me, mm -hmm. I, for me, like I even tested it. So I hadn't, I stopped taking all kinds of drugs like three-ish years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I stopped drinking at that point too. And then about a year later, I was at Christmas dinner and my... My ex-girlfriend or someone said, like, are you scared of alcohol? And I was like, that's a good point. I don't want to be in fear of anything. Mm -hmm. So I, I, t I had two drinks. Mm -hmm. and I just, I, at the moment, I was like, I don't even need this shit. I mm -hmm. had it and I was like, I have no desire for this anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but because I think I realized, why I'm saying this is that I realized what I was running away from. And I get, and I love that part of me. So why I say that is, what were you mostly running away from in yourself? Like, what was driving the addiction internally? What was, like, the wounding that you think kept you coming back? I think I was afraid of who I could become if I actually gave myself a fighting fair chance. Like I'm a very, I'm aware of the power that I have, mm. not only as a woman, but as a child of God, I'm very clear on the power that I have. That's never escaped me. I've always been very aware of how, I, I know the power of my words. I know, I know the power of my thoughts. I know the power of intention. I think I was afraid of my own I was afraid of my own power. That's yeah. it. Because it's going to be too much for people. I'm going to burn you down. You're not going to like me. You're going to think I'm intense. It's all the things you know, textbook, textbooks say about this, you know, what media says about people who have bipolar disorder, what society says about people who have bipolar disorder. I was very afraid of my own power. So I just had to 
medicate it just a little bit, turn it down a little bit. And to yeah. your point about the alcohol, I don't believe once an addict, always an addict either. Um, last year, I experimented with bringing cannabis back into my life, you know, because I wasn't on medication. But I started using cannabis. In my mind, I was like, okay, it's plant, whatever. You know, I started smoking it, uh, started taking edibles. I'm like, oh, this feels good. Like, because I didn't want to be like... I didn't want to feel fucked up, right? Like, I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to ever be out of my mind again. I wanted, like, a relaxant, you know, whatever a mood stabilizer would do. So this whole past year, 2022, I've smoked, used cannabis this entire year. Um, it's a lot of work to maintain that. So I was like, it's a lot of work to be, like, smoking all the time and using yeah. it. So that's why I decided to get back on meds. I want my life to be simple. I live a very simple life. And I have to live a simple life because what I do in the world is bigger you know and so i keep yeah. my personal life simple and yeah. i wanted part of my simplicity in terms of how i take care of my mental emotional health is i would rather take one pill yeah. than be smoking every day yeah i'm, I, I'm yeah. sober by choice because of that because yeah. for me it's like I, I believe in a concept called the golden timeline mm -hmm. that if you're doing things right your your spirit your body's going to be propelled towards what you're meant to be mm -hmm. for your destiny in a way mm -hmm. i knew that like if i would drink smoke or take psychedelics i, I even stopped taking psychedelics about a year ago that I couldn't reach my destiny. Mm -hmm. this, this, I felt to this like contract that if I keep if I have one pill or one weed mm -hmm. or one drink, I can't get there. So that was very much for me being okay. Yep. I'm not I'm not doing this shit. But going back to your point of being afraid of your power, is a concept called the you heard of shadow work, right? Mm -hmm. I'm assuming there's a gold, mm -hmm. there's also the golden shadow. Mm -hmm. Golden shadow is the power in you that you don't want to see. Mm -hmm. So just like the shadow, the, the the shadow is the darkness or the parts of ourselves that we don't want to see in terms mm -hmm. of like a pain or darkness. The golden shadow is the light we can't see. Mm. And when you it, it happens in like idolatry like when you see a movie star and mm -hmm. like, oh she's so beautiful she's so amazing it's that you're seeing her own her light and you can't do it for yourself mm -hmm. so what's that journey for you like now what are you doing to m more so own that power and not be afraid of it or uh, in what ways are you still afraid of it you know i'm still afraid of it with men i'm okay. going to be completely honest uh i can be very seductive i can be very alluring i i am afraid that <laughs> i just don't want to hurt another human being again I really don't. I, you know, and I got married. I was young. thought I should. Then this next relationship that I was in and then I was in, I was engaged again after that. I don't want to hurt another human being again. In that way, I'm still working on being afraid of my own sexual power, my the power that I exude with men. I know the minute I decide I'm ready, I'm open for someone to enter in my life. Game on. You know, uh, I am still feeling comfortable even being with my own power. First thing that I did, I have a great group of girlfriends. I mean, I think, you know, you know, some of the women that I'm friends with, Nita Bushin, you know, who was on the show. She's one of my closest friends. She's been so integral in my life. I've known her for years. Then she moved to Austin. We um, deepened our connection. She's one of my closest friends here. She really helped call me forward. And she was like, Queen, do you know who the hell you are? Like, start acting like it. You know what I mean? So for me, it was very important that I gather women around me because growing up, I had a mother who was quite powerful, but she felt weak. You know, she was weakened by her own emotions. She didn't have a lot of control over her emotions, my mother. She was a yeller, very harsh, she'll admit that. Um, I, so for me, I, I never wanted to be like my mother. I didn't want to be the person that stirred the pot. I didn't want to be this person who yelled all the time, but I ended up becoming that. Um, and so I was afraid of my own anger. I was afraid of my own voice, like, oh, I can't be too loud, can't talk too fast, because it's going to scare people and just afraid of my own power. But now I'm in a place of like, well, what does that look like? What does it look like for me to shine my light and not be afraid? So for me, it's really who I am behind closed doors. I don't, I'm, I've lived that life where it's like on camera, here we are, perfectly quaffed, hair is done, makeup is done. It's, and, and then and then behind closed doors, self-loathing, self-deprecating, self, you know, wallowing in pity, 
using drugs, lying about it, drinking, lying about it. And so for me now, owning my power, owning my light is when I'm getting ready, when I'm doing my hair to appreciate what I look like and to talk to myself in that in the mirror, you know, to say the things to myself that I've needed to hear. Um, yeah. my, my voice is the voice that carries me every day. Um, it's what I'm wearing, the colors that I'm wearing, the time that I take to get dressed, not being in a rush all the time, like taking it slow with me. Um, and that's how I'm also trying to get ready for Whoever may enter into my life next, right? Have you ever seen season two of Bridgerton? Mm -mm. Slow burn. It's all about the slow burn. And for me, it's like, how slow can I go? I love that challenge because my brain loves being challenged, needs a good challenge. And now I'm just challenging my brain to be, to, to ask myself, how slow can I go? How can we savor this even more? So that's been really helpful for me to slow down enough to actually feel my own power and feel my light. Yeah. Were, yeah. You, were you always religious? Throughout all your, your addictions that come after the... No, always. Always, oh, always yeah. I mean, from the from the time I was four years old, my mother taught us, Tatvamasi, Tatvamasi in Sanskrit means I am that. You are God and God is you. Yeah. I didn't know what the hell that meant at four, but I, I, I understood. I was like, yeah, God is here. God is here. God is here. Like I, my mom always said, God is here. God is here. God is everywhere. You are God. So I taught that when I was four. So I'm very, very blessed because while I disconnected from my relationship to God, even though we disconnect from God, God is always there. Yeah. So I just had to reconnect back to that power within me. Um, and I do remember when it got pretty dark for me in 2017, you know, there's no matter how hard it's been for me. And I don't know if it's been like that for you, even when you're doing shit that, you know, you shouldn't be doing like, you know, it's not good for you. I have access to that voice. That's like, you could be better. You shouldn't be doing this. It's like a whisper, but it's like, even when I was like doing my lines of cocaine, getting really fucked up, taking Xanax, doing all this stuff, I could never ignore the voice that was like, Vasavi, this is not what your life is supposed to be like. This is not what got what we have in store for you the scariest time for me was and i didn't hear that voice anymore and that's when i had to go to rehab because it was done like it was done at that point you know so religion and i don't want to say necessarily religion hinduism is a more of a way of life it's called um sanatana dharma which means it's a way of life we live our life according to duty not obligation so we look at everything as a duty like this is our god-given duty my father always said you know, and he's still alive, but everything that he did for my mom, me and my sister, he'd cook for us, he'd do everything. And I go, why do you do everything with such love? My dad said, well, I've been blessed with two daughters and a wife. This is my duty. Yeah. It just, he did it because he loved it. So that's how I view Dharma. Even in Hinduism, we say Dharma. Dharma is your duty. It's like, what are you supposed to do? And what is your duty? And then who's the person that you have to become to fulfill your duty? So Hinduism for me, uh, my religion for me, um, and I'm not very ritualistic. I mean, we grew up with a lot of rituals, but I know that there's no separation. Yeah, why I ask is that in my experience, and I, I study Jungian psychology mostly, mm -hmm. that's where I, 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 where I get my information from, and his conception of, of love is that when you don't have a relationship with a higher power, whether it be you know your higher self or God or whatever mm -hmm. God may be for anyone of any religion, that you end up projecting God into your lover that you see them as like this like a, mm -hmm. this divine entity to like give you you mm -hmm. see them as like as a god in a way because mm -hmm. i think as human beings even if you're an atheist which is fine that we all have a need for something beyond us we have this unconscious need for going beyond the ego mm -hmm. and and love nowadays because we're so close off to that becomes this religious experience mm -hmm. that people project onto their partner mm -hmm. so i say that for you is that like it can end up helping you that in this in this space because you have a connection to your, your mm -hmm. spirit something higher that mm -hmm. you're going to see the man in front of you as a human being not not as a as a God, in my experience in the past, whenever I fucked up a relationship, it's because I unconsciously saw my partner as, as a divine, as like a divine mm -hmm. entity that I then thought was was God in a way. And when she was actually human, it hurt me so much. 
because I was like, how is this person not, you know, a god? The thing that I had to do was take my father off the pedestal. Now, the 40-year-old in me, you know, understands my father is a human, but there's a very little girl in me that saw my father as a god. I mean, even to, I mean, my father was my hero. Yeah. He still, that, for that four or five, six-year-old, for that young part of me, my father is still like a god for me, you know, but I had to separate, my 40-year-old had to see my, my current self had to see my father. I had to take him off the pedestal. He's currently slowly dying with a a progressive neurological condition, which is very rare, called supranuclear palsy. So it's like atypical Parkinson's where he can't walk without falling. He's uncontrollable bowel movements now. And his speech is like, he says yes or no. That's it. So when my dad started getting sick like three years ago, it was just, it got worse and worse. I was like, oh man, he's not he's not that man anymore, you know? So that that has helped me to see him um, kind of deteriorate in front, deteriorate in front of me, just how human he is. Um, and I appreciate you saying that because anytime I've ever really struggled with the breakup or like in a relationship, it's because I replaced this person. I, I, I put this person above God. And so that's what the vow to myself is. No one comes before that relationship ever again. Like that's my, my vow to myself, no matter what next relationship I get into, I'm still going to keep up with my habits. I am not going to forego my mental health for somebody else. Like you are a sovereign being. And so am I, you know, but I had to learn that lesson. I think for me, I always needed someone to look up to rather than I needed a human to look up to as most children do. I mean, those are our parents or whoever our caregivers are, but now I know, um, that it's me and the God within me. And it always has been. And we got split off from a young age, hence the bipolarity that exists within all of us. Yeah, what's what's that like now with with your dad? Because you looked up to him so much that, you know, I, I lost my mom, and when when I when that happened happened last year, it was I realized how much I, how much power I unconsciously gave her. That just having a parent that we look up to in our life, like just gives us something in our bodies and our minds that we don't realize. That once that's gone, you kind of have to sat with how can I give what this person gave me to myself. So how are you dealing with that now? How are you sitting with that, that this person could, could go potentially and that you have to find a way to give the gifts he gave you to yourself in some way? Um, it is the most devastating thing I have ever experienced to watch a parent decline. You yeah. know, it would be easier if he was just gone. You know, I was saying yeah. that to my mama yesterday. Sorry. No, no, okay. I said, uh, is it wrong that I'm like, man, my mom said to me yesterday, she goes, you know, I've been praying to God this whole time to keep your father around. But I, I, I you know, the other day I prayed to God, just take him away because he's suffering. He's yeah. so suffering. Uh, he's suffering in silence, literally, because he can't speak. And um, so what is it like for me? It's the worst thing I've ever gone through in my life. And I've been through a lot of stuff. I've seen a lot of things. I've hurt myself in so many ways. But watching my father decline, it's like, a, it's like a, there's a part of my chest that I didn't know had so much. I like, I feel it. It's the, it's so devastating. That's the word that I keep. It's, yeah. it's, it's devastating. And what it's done is taken him down the, uh, taken him off the pedestal. And it's also helped me deepen my surrender. We talk about surrender all the time. I can't do anything about my father. That is, it is, it is in, truly in God's hands. So it is a very helpless feeling. And it's the helpless feeling that I've had since I was a kid watching a train wreck and not be able to stop it, watching my fa- parents fight with each other, my mother screaming, my father not saying anything, me being young and just feeling so helpless, like I can't do anything about it. That's the that's what it brings up for me, helplessness and powerlessness, which I don't like feeling. But it's um, actually feeling powerless and feeling helpless helps me train my mind to be like, where do where can I get my power back? Where am I leaking power in my own life? So my father is 
the kindest man ever. I have yeah. I have nothing bad to say about him, not because I think he's perfect, but my experience of my father growing up that he is he was meant to be a girl dad. Okay, he treated my sister and I with so much respect and kindness and tenderness. So to see him suffering is just not fair. And um, I don't bypass that. I don't say, I don't, I don't, I don't do this like personal growth shit. Like it's all for the best. It's divine. Yeah, I get that it's divine, divine and all that. But I'm never, I'm not gonna l not let the human in me experience this. It is devastating. No matter how much you want to try to bypass it or sugarcoat it, watching your parent decline in front of you, especially a parent that was a good, like my father was an excellent father. Yeah. So to see him decline is just, it's awful. Hey, I, I experienced it. Mine was two weeks. My mom got sick and then two weeks out. So see, being that experience, it's, it's tough, especially because <clears throat> me, even though I do most psychological stuff, I know how to heal people mm -hmm. intuitively and, and like with different stuff. I, I've studied that kind of stuff, worked under people to teach me, but that was just tough for me is that I knew what to do to fix her and to heal her, mm -hmm. but her, her spirit was just ready to go. Yeah. Um, and that was the worst part. That, that truly taught me surrender, being like, mm -hmm. I can't help or, or fix a person I love the most. It's their, 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 it's their time. They, they want to, I'm not saying I have to bypass anything. It was, it was of course, devastating, yeah. but that was that was the hardest part, being like, there's a higher mm -hmm. order here. And I, it's the last thing I want my, like you, you know, I think one thing with smart people, and I can sense that in you, is that uh, it's a, dangerous tool because you can over intellectualize things to not feel feel, feel oh. emotions all the time right yeah. so it's like this so i'm not saying that to be like oh you know like it's, it's for a higher mm -hmm, purpose mm -hmm. but that was tough i was like i could fix this like my need for control i can fix this and do it but i can't at the same time it's her it's her path it's her journey so it's the every time i facetime my dad my dad so my dad now with this with this disease he like it takes him a long time to go to the bathroom so yeah. our mornings usually <laughs> Or when my mom wants to FaceTime me, it's my mom, my dad on the toilet, me FaceTiming. And it's funny. We all laugh about it, right? We use humor. We don't, we, we, we're not bypassing. Our family is very emotional, you know. Yeah. But uh, it's, I laugh. I say to my dad, okay, here we go. Ha, you know, shit or get off the pot. Like, I'll just make jokes with my dad while he's trying to go to the bathroom. And he laughs. And all I can do is... Uh, Try to make him laugh. That's all I do. And I do let him know how devastating this is. I know he still feels. He just can't express what he's um, feeling. But to answer your... I, I want to go back to something that you said. Me watching my father and not being able to help him, I really do feel is helping me in this next version of who I'm going to be with. So I can look at any man and be like, wow, you are, you are so human and I can't help you even if I try. Yeah. Like, I, I want to... I don't want to go into any relationship with someone ever again being like, you're good. But you could be better. Of course, we could all be better. I just I I'm retraining my mind to not be like that, you know. And the way that I'm doing that is just noticing myself when I'm in front of a man or when I'm talking to a guy and seeing where am I trying to be, where am I being energetically domineering, and I know that I've done that in the past because if I'm taking over the conversation and if I'm filling the space with my energy, then I don't have to maybe deal with you not wanting me back or you not loving me back. So I'm just going to smother you with all the love because what if, because then I don't have to deal with the the reality of maybe you don't like, like me back. And so I'm just going to smother you. And that's something that I just don't do anymore. I don't want to smother anyone. Yeah. How, how are you doing with the addiction piece of it? Because in those moments when you're confronted with that, that deep pain and all these mm -hmm. huge triggers, how does that part of your brain come back of like trying to escape? How are you handling that, handling that now? 
Well, so cocaine for me, thank God, it's just one of those things. It's like, nope, never doing that again. My brain, what I've told my brain is, listen, if we want to screw up our life, let's just say we feel like one day, let's screw up our life. I know who to call. I know where to go. I know how to begin. I know how to destroy my life. I literally, I can, I can step by step tell you how to destroy my life. Um, the other thing that I've learned in rehab, and I, and I think I, I've done this as a kid, just because I, I always dealt with a little bit of anxiety, was I played the tape out, right? I always say to myself, okay, boss, let's just say you succumb to this craving. You do it, okay? You get a bag of cocaine, you do this, and then what? And then what? I, I love asking myself, and then what? And then what? And the story ends up the same. I'm going to destroy myself. I know that. So I'm giving myself a fair shot in this season of my life. I know how to destroy myself. I know how to build myself back up. I'm one of the most resilient people I know. But now I'm in a, a place of let me create and let me sustain. And actually, that's interesting because my name, Vasavi, um, it's actually the feminine version of Vasava. Vasava is also another name for Vishnu, which is one of our Hindu gods. And Vishnu is the god of sustenance. He sustains like he sustains everything. He preserves everything. So I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but that's where I'm at now. I don't have cravings for cocaine. Like I'm very... Do you ever think yeah. about... What I think about sometimes is that what if that happened, in my experience my mom, mm -hmm. happened when I was a drug addict. I always think about it like I would have been fucked. Oh, no. You would, you'd probably be dead. You'd yeah, probably I, do... I, maybe I have an overdose. Be, I would yeah. be dead. Yeah. yeah, you'd be dead. You wouldn't be able to handle that. And I'm not saying that because I think you're weak. But no. if you're using drugs, yeah. obviously there's a... There's something that's dis yeah. dysregulated. There is a weakness and a powerlessness already. On top of that, your mother, who you've had your history with, no, hell, hell no. Like, my my addiction got worse when my dad cut me off. Yeah. He cut me off, and then I was just, yeah, feeding the beast. I'm going to give you a break to digest all this amazing information. And in this break, please like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you. Well, you have, you have a fairly powerful story. Thank know? you. And I'm assuming that's, you know, guided in a way for you to, to learn what you learned. So I want to go more into kind of the lessons you've learned from that to help people mm -hmm. in a way. And the the main concept of your book, which is an excellent book, by the way, is, is this unique concept of, you know, of talking to yourself in a way and saying things out loud. Mm -hmm. When did that start for you to actually start saying shit out loud? And why do you think it's so effective? Um, I st Well, I first learned that it was okay to compliment yourself and just use your words to feel good. I would watch my father get ready in the morning. He uh, he was a CPA. He was in private practice. He was always wearing his three-piece suit, which he got tailored in India, and he would comb his hair in front of the mirror, and I would sit on the bed and watch my father get ready, and he'd look in the mirror, and he goes, aren't I so handsome? He goes, I am going to do so well at work today. I'm going to get a few new clients, and he would talk to himself in the mirror, and he would say, don't I look so handsome today? And he, and I heard my father, and he, and he always said to me, he's like, you know, you can make yourself feel good, right? You can make yourself feel good about yourself. And so I learned that just watching it. But when I actually started to talk to the voices in my head was when I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 19. And I became acutely aware of my racing thoughts. Like I always had racing thoughts, but now that I had a label put to it and I had a diagnosis, I started to become even more aware of these thoughts. The way that I learned to slow my mind down was by giving each of these thoughts a voice. So in my book, I talk about all, we have different parts of us. Each of these parts have subpersonalities. Each of these subpersonalities has its own unique voice and expression. So in my book, Say It Out Loud, I talk about there's vulnerable Vasavi, there's vicious Vasavi, there's vixen Vasavi, there's vulnerable Vasavi, there's vigilant Vasavi. You have many different forms of Lucas and every single part of Lucas has its own voice. So when I started, when I got diagnosed and I wanted to understand my mind better, 
I would say, I'd be driving on the Long Island Expressway with my with these fast thoughts and I'm like, okay, let's just say these thoughts. So I would say the thoughts, oh, I'm thinking about this, oh, this, this. And I would say like, wow, I have so many different, why is my mind, like I, I could go from here to here to here. And then, so I just started to pick one thought and I would talk back to it. And I would just keep talking back to it. Like, let's say I was having a conflict drama with friend. Who, who doesn't have dramas with their friend in, at, at the age of 20, right? So I was having drama with the girlfriend. And so I'd let one voice say, like, she's such a bitch. And then I'd be like, wait. But then I'd let my rational side come in. We have a rational side. We have a logical side to us. We have a compassionate side to us. And I would dialogue back. And so what that helped me do, Lucas, was to separate myself from my thoughts, right? So when I would say my thoughts out loud, I no longer was the thought. And then I was able to hear my thought and then that would and then I when I talk back to it it I could access another part of me does that make sense yeah it seems crazy because it, it it might be but it works for me to really help make sense out of things so if I'm upset if I'm confused by something if I'm overthinking something if I uh, am complicating something I will say it out loud okay Vas let's get to work what is overwhelming you right now and then I'll pause and then I'll let my overwhelmed side of me say okay I have this to do, I have this to do, I have this to do. So I believe that every single one of us has access to the voice of God within us. It's the voice of ration. It's the voice of love. It's the voice of wanting what's best for you and just to help you keep it moving, right? Like yeah. for me, it's that voice that's like, let's get down to business. Let's do it. But it's not it, it not at all cost, right? I want to maintain my integrity. I want to maintain my dignity. And I also want to honor those around me, you know? So that's that voice that keeps me grounded. You know, I, you know, the greatest blessing of being diagnosed with a mental illness or a thought disorder or brain disorder is that I I had to learn how to teach myself to think. And one of the things that I think I'm extremely good at is taking any situation and finding the root of it or finding any situation and I can see multiple perspectives. I can see I can see this person's side, I can see that person, I can see the overarching. That's just the way my brain is, you know, that nothing for me um, feels unsolvable. Right. And I think it's like, oh, there's a there's a solution to it. And the solution necessarily isn't to do, but it is to reframe and shift how we're looking at a situation. So that's that's where I'm at today. Yeah, what yeah. I not seeing that is that when you kind of speak all your voices out loud, yeah. you lose kind of the shame you have over mm -hmm. them or you lose the resistance towards yeah. I think a lot of suffering is this disassociation we have with these voices, like, what mm -hmm. the fuck is this person? Why mm -hmm. is this person telling me these crazy yes. things? When you speak out loud, it's kind of you really you're forced to yeah. accept it and lose the shame for it mm -hmm. and lose the resistance for it. Yes, is that kind of the effect it has? That's it. And and you know a lot of us don't have someone safe that we can talk to. I have a group called Say It Out Loud Safe Haven. It's where everyone can speak, speak their shit. You know, our shame shrivels when we say it out loud, right? Because if there's something that I'm ashamed of and I'm keeping it inside and keeping it inside, it just grows, right? It's just it just will just keep growing and growing. But when I say it out loud. Not even to another human being. I'm going to say why. I'm going to tell you why it's important to say it to another human being in a second. But I need to be the witness of my own shame, right? So when I'm ashamed of something, and during my recovery, I was extremely ashamed of the fact that I was 37 and my mother was paying my bills. Because my mother said, listen, I don't want you to get back into work and make all this money and then lose focus again. Let me take care of you for seven months. My mother said, I will pay all your bills. You're going to be on a budget. But I need you to learn how to love yourself. That's what my mother said, right? So I... During that time, that's when I really started to pay attention to what I was telling myself. And I would say really mean things to myself, Lucas. I would, obviously, I couldn't use drugs. I wasn't drinking. I was newly single. Yep. I had nobody but myself and my relationship or some budding relationship with God. And I'd be laying on the couch, 
looking up at the fan and contemplating, should I kill myself or not? That's how my father, that's how my father's younger brother uh, took his own life. He hung himself. So I'd be new in recovery. It was probably like 2020, um, beginning of the pandemic. And I'd say that out loud. I'd be better off dying. I would say that out loud. And then the other voice would say, yeah, you should die. You're a fucking loser. Your mother's taking care of you. She's paying your AT&T bill. You can't even pay your own bills. I would say that mean voice out loud. And then I would soften and I would access this other part of me that was just really scared. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I really messed up my life, but I'm going to get back on my feet. Okay. And then I, that's what I would do. I was all alone. I didn't have anyone around me. My parents are, everyone's on the East coast. And so that's how I learned to keep myself sane is by talking to myself because my father's younger brother, Lakshmi Kumar, who has inspired my entire life and whose suicide did save my life, I would say. When I found out that he killed himself, he was 30 years old when he took his own life, and I was 10 at the time. And I just, at that point, I didn't realize that someone's mind could make them do something, right? And when I got diagnosed nine years later with bipolar disorder, I took it very seriously, and I said, well, I don't want to end up like my uncle, because clearly something was off up here that thought that made him believe that the only way out was to kill himself. So I even in my book say it out loud. I, I acknowledge my uncle and I say, I promise till the day I die, I will keep talking about you and how you took your life so that no one ever feels like that that is the only way out. I'm not saying my please by any means, I'm not saying my book is going to help somebody who's suicidal. I don't want to put those claims. But I do believe that when we are kinder with ourselves and we we kind of kinder with ourselves and we learn to access a different part of us, who knows? I mean, maybe instead of doing the thing that's most harmful, you can access a part of you that's actually going to speak kinder words to you and make maybe have you do actions that are more helpful to you. If your mind goes in that direction, what do you do? It really doesn't go in that direction anymore. I got I mean, it doesn't. Yeah. I it doesn't go there. It doesn't go there. I've no, it doesn't go there. I think <laughs> it does go. I was taking a bath the other day and it might have been like a few days before my period. So I know like right before my period, I'm just always a little heavy, a little darker <laughs> and a little bit more like dramatic. And I was in the shower. I was in I was in the bathtub and I was just this is before I went on meds, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, this was just last month. And this voice in my head was like. What if you just drowned right now and nobody freaking knew that you were just dead? You'd just be here dead. And I'm like, and I and, and I and then I said out, I heard that voice silently in my head. Well, I was just enjoying a bath. I was just so like that voice is there. It's just it's just there. It just kind of creeps on in, you know? And then I said out loud, no, we have a great life. There's no reason for us to kill ourselves. Like I have to still talk to that voice. It's still there. It's just very quiet. It usually creeps up when I'm the happiest. It usually creeps up when I'm at the most uh, most peaceful. It also creeps up when I'm feeling very shitty or just horm- like energetically down. Like because I didn't know how to distinguish, oh, this is like a hormone imbalance or I'm just tired versus no boss, this is depression. You know, so I had to learn that like me feeling low isn't necessarily a call to take my own life. It's just, girl, this is normal. You're going to have highs and you're going to have lows. And I'm hoping my life now isn't like this anymore. I don't have high peaks and, and low lows. I, I'm diagnosed with bipolar type one. So I have uh, more weeks of mania than depression. Um, but now I'm not like this. It's more like this. But that's like normal, right? Yeah. We're going to have our days like this. And I don't hurt myself. And for me, a win is that no matter what, where I'm at, that I'm treating myself with utmost love and kindness. And as long as I'm not hurting myself, I'm good.
You yeah. know what I mean? So I do still have that voice. It's not frequent, though. I don't think yeah, about taking my, my own life. My experience, because yeah. I, I mean, I've struggled with that beast, not anymore, but a lot yeah. in the past. <clears throat> and I think the more I've not wanted to escape how I feel, mm -hmm. I think that's like the ultimate voice of of trying to escape how you feel. Mm -hmm. It's like the 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 master stage or the mm -hmm. big boss of mm -hmm. like of really telling you I cannot be with this emotion mm -hmm. anymore. So like I need to escape this emotion. We mm -hmm. internalize that as like killing myself. Yeah. But in my experience. But the more I've kind of just willfully wrestled any emotions that I don't mm -hmm. want to feel, the more that that voice of escape just doesn't come up. And I want to get your opinion on that. What's the power in having no resistance to your emotions? Just like really being open to feeling what is. So I believe that we are clear channels and I, we are, we, we are meant to be clear channels. We, I mean, in order for God and creativity to move through us, we have to be clear. And I think that saying it out loud and talking it out loud keeps us clear. I, you know, a lot of us are emotionally constipated. We have stuff inside of us that we have, have been lodged in us for years. And there is power in saying it out loud because you're releasing it. I, just like I use the bathroom every single day, it's important for me to, when I'm feeling something, instead of avoiding it, um, I, I express it, you know what I mean? And I breathe through it, which activates my parasympathetic system, right? So I, when I feel those big emotions, I just take a really big breath and I just breathe through it. And I feel the most intensity of emotions when it, as it relates to my father, like that, th these days in my, in my most current, uh, life, I, the, the, like the intensity of emotions that I experience is directly related to my father and that's okay. That's, that's what it is right now. I use it as an opportunity to breathe through it. It's gotten my mother and I closer. It's gotten my, my sister and I closer, not necessarily my father and I, because he's, you know, a little checked out right now, but, um, I appreciate the heaviness. I love it. I just, I, I tell myself, boss, we have to purge this. We have to release this. Those tears are coming. Don't stop. Like even now when we were talking about my dad, I was like, I could feel it. Come on. I was like, just let it out. Like, why are we trying to suppress that? So for me, it's like, it's a daily practice. Like we do ice baths, like we do saunas that we need to be in the practice of if we're feeling something heavy, we have to allow ourselves to move through it. And that could be breathing. That could be going for a run. And for me, what has worked is just calling up a friend and being like, can I just say this out loud to you? And I'll be like, yeah, and I just say it or I'll just say it to myself, you know, but I, I want to encourage everyone watching to please not do life alone, you know, because that's the thing when you're when, when it's just you and you, um, you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. Right. And sometimes you do need to be around other people who see things differently. Um, but I do believe and this is what I say in the book is that when you say it out loud, you have access, you can hear yourself. And I promise you, I'm no special than anybody else watching this. We all have the voice inside of us. That's like, you deserve better. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, I hear you. In my, in my experience of, of dealing with the heaviness and situations like that, it's a good opportunity. If you look, I mean, if, if you look, zoom out and you look back on all the, on the trials and tribulations, you know, you've had in your life. There's always this feeling of like, for me, that I was broken open. Not like I, I, that I learned so much in, in pain and violence, all this stuff mm -hmm. that I was broken open to help people be compassionate. So in those moments of like intense pain, I allow myself to be, rather than being broken down and like victim mode or hard on myself, which is okay for some time, but if you allow it to break your heart open, to have increased compassion empathy mm -hmm. for yourself, it's it's powerful, right? If you think of, you know, we walk into a church, Jesus is on the cross. Mm -hmm. Why? Because when we see suffering in reality, our heart opens. Mm -hmm. So it's like we can use experiences like that of, of seeing loved ones suffering, mm -hmm. ourselves suffering for our heart to just kind of open up yeah. in some way. You notice that, like, if you ever, like, really go into the feeling, you can feel your heart kind of opened up in some weird fucked up way. 
<laughs> well, when I was a kid, my mother would bring us back to India every single year, right? She didn't. We, we were born and raised in this country. My sister and I were born and raised in New York, but she didn't want us to lose our culture. So when we would go back, I've been going back to India since I was two. But the earliest memory I have of seeing suffering was when I was four years old. And there was, you know, half our population in India lives on the street. We're one third the size of the U.S., but we have three times the population. That's the first time I, extremed, I, I witnessed extreme poverty. Yeah. And I saw this homeless man, tattered clothes, whatever, uh, eating a banana peel out of a pile of garbage. Not even a banana. He was a banana peel. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't even remember thinking at that point. I actually remember just feeling an overwhelming amount of pain for that person. But then with that, an overwhelming amount of like, I have to do something about it. And I believe that that's my love that was talking. Like, I, I have to do something. Why do people have to suffer, right? And that's where I, that's, I would say, has, has been the, like, the kickstart for me to do whatever I can to help those who are suffering in silence. What I had to learn, though, was, Vasavi, you do not need to suffer in the process, right? But I believe that our subconscious and our spirit doesn't make any mistakes and that my soul chose the path that I took. It made sure, like, I've been through so much. I'm like, what haven't I been through? I mean, I'm sure there's so much more, you know, that, I mean, there's way, it could, it could be way worse, right? But that's the thing. It's like, I can only speak from my own perspective. Um, but I, I don't regret anything. Um, but I feel like when I feel ex extreme pain, I immediately feel extreme love with that. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Um, especially when you're in relationships that are, feel really painful and you're like, yeah, but I love this person. And it's like, does love really need to feel this painful? I don't know. I'm still finding out. We'll see. How are you still finding out? I... <laughs> Avoidance? No, I, I just, I'm, I'm, a, I don't know. I, I, when I'm around people now, I would prefer not to feel a lot of pain. I'd prefer to enjoy the relationships that I'm in. And I remember when I was in that very codependent relationship right after my divorce, I had this, um, my ex had bought this like thing to hang in our bedroom that said, love is a, love is chaotic. And I looked at that sign every day and I was like, love is chaotic. Yes, this chaos. We're meant to be chaotic. I mean, he'd cheat on me. He'd do this. He'd do that. And I'd be like, yes, it's chaos, but we're going to work through it. And now I'm like, no, I don't want that chaos. If it's, I'm not saying that relationships don't get messy and, you know, we have to work on stuff, but do I have to be in so much pain? Are you, is, is part of loving that you hurt me and I'm supposed to take it? You know, so that's what I'm no longer available for. It's like, if, if I'm feeling that you are not respecting me and you, you're you looking down on me and you don't really love me or cherish me, that is not my sign to stick around and try harder. You know, that's my exit. That's my coup to leave. And so um, we'll see what happens. I haven't dated anybody. I haven't gone on any dates. It's been a while. I, I don't think I've been available. I'm very much work mode, book yeah. launch mode. So we'll see. Yeah. Right, right now in, the, in this moment in time to get more of your story now, what are some feelings you struggle with what are the things that like what are you, what's your kryptonite right now that you're dealing with what are the things that's hard for you to so beyond you know your father's experience like personal triggers like what's hard for your own ego your own story everyone has their own villain in their in their reality what's like that feeling or situation that makes you really uncomfortable really have to work for a solution you ask very good questions give me a moment so i can answer this honestly take, truthfully take, and clearly It's the struggle of like, I'm so, I think I'm very open. I'm open and I share and I've been transparent. I've dedicated my life to living it transparently and just out loud. You know, I, I love the internet, uh, but you know, just like sharing my story out loud. That's what I'm trained to do. You know, as a therapist, I went to, I was in therapy when I was 12 for 16 years. I started therapy at 12. So I'm used to talking out loud. That's what I do. The thing that 
my ego, I think, still struggles with is, man, you really fucked up your life. You should be farther along, Vasavi. Mm. That's what it is. It's um, But it's not comparison to other people. It's still like, you should be farther along. Come on. You should be farther along. And so... But you are farther along. I know. And that's the voice that I have to deal with. And I have to let that voice know, like, can you let me live? Like, I'm doing it, you know? I struggle with the same thing, because my... I I have I believe I have a fucked up brain because I'm on drugs I used to do, which he, I'm assuming you share the same things. For me, it's like how much smarter, more. How much I more? Would, but at the same time, yeah. it's like my heart is that much more open. Yeah. And that's the biggest gift, right? Like if I didn't have all that shit, if you didn't have all that shit, you wouldn't be nearly as good as what you do. You wouldn't you wouldn't be Thanks. a service. So that's like the the angelic voice there, but it's true. Like mm-hmm. I have the same struggle, but it's just. Like, imagine if you didn't have any issues. Like, where would you be? I'm so, I'm happy. I'm grateful for the person that I am. I want to keep answering your, your I want to answer your personal yeah. trigger because I don't feel it's, a, I, I've gotten to the juice here. Okay. Can you ask it a different way? Would you mind asking it a different way so my brain can hear it a different way? Can you ask this question differently? Yeah, of course. Like, take me to the, the if you were to create data mm-hmm. of all your shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a lot. <laughs> and you would look at the one right now. Of your own, like, uh, what do you resist most in reality? What what presentation of reality or situations or thoughts? Like, what part of your experience and in, in your humanness is the hardest for you to sit with and deal with? Oh, I love this. Oh, okay. So, having bipolar disorder, what I'm very good at is creating two realities. My brain can re can create the persona of who I, who I know I can be. It's like us. I can I can actually like visualize and taste it, feel it, smell it. This is the Vasavi that I know I can be. This is the Vasavi that I am here right now. And so the resistance that I have is is to not, oh my God, it's like I want to speed up. I want to be quick. My brain wants to do things quickly. Like my blessing and curse is like, if you ask me to do something, I'll do it on the spot. I'm very quick. I'm very quick and that has worked for me. You know, I can, I can, I'm a hustler. I can figure it out. I just went back to Manhattan after 10 years. I was on the subway. It was, it was like, great. I, I can, I can figure that out. But in my own personal life, it's always like, I always think I got to do more. I got to do more. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough because the bipolar part of my brain can create two realities. It's the reality of who I can be and the reality of who I am. And sometimes I don't like that. I'm like, why can't I be there? But what I'm noticing is that that there is here now. And it's just like, no, I am that girl. I see it. I am that girl. Not because of what I look like, not because of what I sound like, but because of how I feel on the inside. So I'm still training my brain to stop thinking about the outside. Stop thinking about the forward-facing presentation. Do not worry about that, Vasavi. Lead with what's on the inside. And that part of my brain always wants me to do more, always thinks I need to be more this or more this rather than just lean back and just, you're good. So that's... Yeah, you don't need to be something you need to be. That's like, yes, that's the, the key right there that we think that um, there's this ego has these snapshots where we think that if we once you are something where we get somewhere, mm-hmm. everything's good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's incorrect because we already are those things. And it's like it's, it's rat race. Mm-hmm. Like years ago by I was trying to chase this thing that we already are. It's already here. And I'm, I'm with you. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the same way. Like I just my instinct is to ramp up and just do things all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's my my past with that is I had to you know do things to receive love. Right. Like if mm-hmm. I was. You know, like academically, you know, mm-hmm. I had a similar journey to us. So I, I went to an Ivy League school, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I had to, I felt the need to do to receive love. And then that was my own way of receiving love to myself. Like if I didn't, wasn't doing things to become something, I couldn't love myself. So the journey for me just being like, I am just love here right now in this moment, talking to you. And, and I don't have to do anything or be anything. It just mm-hmm. is. So 
how does it feel for you to can you say that like in your body naturally does it feel weird to say that like i can love myself or just being here right now and not doing anything just sitting down and existing is that foreign concept to you <laughs> um with the man yes with the woman, or my girlfriends come over, like my girlfriend Nita came over to my house the other day. We just sat, we just sh sh shoot the shit, you know, we just hung out and I can just be with her. I don't have to do anything for her, for her to love me. Like I yeah. just exist. I mean, we talk or whatever, yeah. but I always, no, I don't want to say I'm always, I'm unlearning that when I'm with, uh, in the presence of someone of the opposite, you know, sex for me, it's just, oh, because that, that's just what I do with my dad. Yeah. My, my dad was my everything to me. So I always wanted to take care of my dad emotionally. And the way I took care of my dad emotionally was by being on. He was like low-key depressed most, yeah. of his, most of his life. Now I can see that. So for me, it's, um I got to be your energy. I got to be that. And so I'm realizing I don't have to be that. And I'm not going to attract the man that I really want to be with if I if I have to be on. I'm, I'm going to attract a man who wants me for my onness, being on, rather than just being. So I'm still working on it. Yeah, it's a it's a journey. I'm curious to see what happens when you have that trigger because it's different. Like in in relationships, when mm -hmm. you like uh, I, there's this this self help cliche that I don't agree with, which is that like you know you got to love your, yourself first, and then mm -hmm. it's like yeah, to some degree, sure. Like you yeah. gotta respect yourself. I think mm -hmm. it's a better word. You gotta respect yourself yeah. first, but you're not gonna see the true shit until you're with someone. Like you yeah. can do the sitting by yourself and loving yourself as long as you want, but until you're face to face with someone you love. That's the that's the game right there. That's a dance right there. So what, in that, if you were to think of you know a relationship coming on or a man coming into your life, what what's the fear there for you? Like what do you think that would would come up right with them that would challenge you that you aren't experiencing right now by yourself? Mm. Oh, <laughs> was a challenge. I don't know. <laughs> You're asking me things. I love not knowing. What is the challenge? Given. Everything else is okay. Like, like, what's our baseline? Just, just, just being with someone, like, like, like a, a partner. Like, what would do you think? Like, for me, I can sit here and say, like, I know what shit will come up for me mm -hmm. once I'm with someone. Like, challenges that will come. So, like, oh, okay. If oh, if 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 I'm crying about something, or if I'm expressing something, and they say you're being dramatic, mm -hmm. or if they invalidate how I feel, and they can't, or they try to fix how I feel, or they try to tell me how I feel. I don't like people telling me how I feel. I know how I feel. You know, I get annoyed when somebody tries to therapize me. It's like, don't therapize the therapist, please. Please don't do that. You know, because I'm a licensed therapist also. It's like, please yeah. don't do that. I think I'm really afraid of being seen by a man in my weakness. How does that, do you ever feel, being a therapist, do you ever feel the need to fix people? Is that like a, a wounding for you or is that? Always. Yeah. Always. I, I, I don't have a need to fix. I just cannot help but see everything from a psychological lens. And yeah. I look at one person, but I see the whole picture. Same here. Yeah. What's it? Is it overwhelming sometimes? Yeah. I, I wish I was like Kelly Bundy from Married with Children. You probably, I, I don't know mm -hmm. if you remember that show. She's kind of ditzy and just kind of like unaware. I see too much. And that actually makes me afraid of being in my next relationship. I need to be with someone who sees as much as I do. Because then otherwise I'm trying to help you see the light. And I don't want to play that role anymore. It's a lot of work helping somebody see the light. I'm already doing that in my career. In my love life, I would like to be with someone who is open and can see <clears throat> at some similar level as me. For sure. Yeah. Does that sound like a lot? Am I asking for too much? Like, I'm just not trying to be anyone's therapist because I know my tendency is, let me show you the way, oh dear one. Have you ever seen the movie um, Bull Durham? Mm -mm. Can you play, try to watch it tonight, please? It's with Tim Robbins, Susan Sarandon, um, and Kevin Costner. It's a baseball movie, but it's so much more than a baseball movie, okay? Mm -hmm. But it, it, she was saying in the movie, like, I could just look at someone and I can see all their pain. 
and I can see all their potential and I can see exactly what they need to let go of and exactly who they need to be and what they need to say and what they need to do. And I could see it so clearly, but I had to learn to like, I cannot be the one for you, you know? Um, and I, 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 I don't ever want to get into a relationship again thinking you're the one for me. You're my forever. I don't believe in a forever anymore. I don't think everything is forever. I don't. Yeah. I'm going to be, I, every time I've gotten into a relationship, it's like, this is the one. We're going to be together for, I don't believe in forever anymore. We'll see how it goes. If it works, it works. Yeah. If it doesn't, it in doesn't. In my experience, I'm like you. I can, I can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. People just intuitively. And, but no matter, even if you attract someone who is on the path and very aware and like you, you're going to still see shit that they can't see no matter what. So it's kind of, I think it's surrendering to their, their, their path, their experience. That's one thing I've noticed in love is that when you're with someone, you have to surrender to their path. Even if you think you know the better that they can mm -hmm. do something, you have to surrender to that possibility that they're able to handle their own reality and learn, learn their own lessons. And, you know, you have to surrender to the humanness. Like, is that something with, with yourself is it easy for you now to surrender to your humanness? Like, is there some, I don't know if it's attached to bipolarity, but, you know, I'm a perfectionist in many ways. And I, I find it hard sometimes to, like, accept my humanness. I think I'm, like, I'm beyond it. Like, like I'm too evolved to feel a certain way. You well, know? The, well, the bipolar brain will make you think that you're God. And it, it, there is a, there are, there is grandiosity. There, I've, I've. I have dealt with a superiority complex that my, my brain will tell me I'm better than everybody. My brain will also tell me that I'm a piece of shit. So what do I, what do we believe? Right? Like I, I, I don't believe that. And I don't believe this. I just, it is easier for me to accept my own humanness now because life has shown me over and over again, how human I am. Um, but when you said just now being in a relationship with someone and accepting their humanness, I don't know if I want to do all that right now. I'm quite mm -hmm. content with yeah. myself being with me is a 24 seven job and it's a job. Like I am a job and I don't, I take, I take that job very seriously to be the person that I am to be now in a relationship and allow someone else into my world and bring those worlds together. I don't know if I want all that right now. I'm being straight up with you. Like yeah, I, I, sure. I think it'd be great to like meet a guy, talk to a guy, go out to dinner, have fun, whatever. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I want to get really enmeshed with anyone for a while right now, because it's taken so much for me to be unmeshed yeah. from people. I can finally feel myself. I can finally hear myself. I'm learning what's me and what's everybody else, where other people end and where I begin, where my past ends and now where my current self is. I finally just feel like, okay, Voss, you're no longer there anymore. My body now feels we're not back in rehab anymore. You don't have people having seizures next to you. You're out of that. We're here now, Voss. So I'm finally now feeling safe within myself to just be and be curious about who I am. I say I'm open for a relationship and cool. We'll see what happens. I believe God has a plan. I'm not hunting for one. It's not my job to hunt for yeah. a man. I just got to go live my life. If somebody crosses my path, shoot your shot and I'll see if, what's up. <laughs> like, yeah. but I'm not trying to get myself involved with somebody else. I've been through too much. I've hurt a lot of people in my life through my addiction and in my relationships. And I'm finally just figuring out and being okay with not even figuring out, being okay and, and being the embodiment who, of who I think Vasavi is how God wants me to be. And that's it. Do you often feel like you're wrestling with your mind? You ask really good questions. <laughs> do I often feel that's like my job, my, my, <laughs> do I often feel like I'm wrestling with my mind? It depends on like, it's, it's, it's no longer big life stuff. It's like small details, like, like flights and like travel. I don't have conflict the way that I used to anymore. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm very clear, but before I get to the clarity, there's a little bit of wrestling. What should I do? Should I do this or should I do it that way? And then it's just like, boss, 
What do you want to do? So that's the question. It's like, what do you want to do? What feels good for you? Like, I just put out this new offer, okay? And I, 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 I don't want to make it about the offer. It's actually just like my creative process. Because I've been in the internet marketing game for 11 years, right? We've been taught so much. Like, say it this way. Hook your audience this way. Do this. Like, all just feels like, it's like, where's my voice in all of this? So even in creating my offer, this new offer that I put out there, it's um, all about role-playing with me. I love role-playing with people uh, in my romantic partnerships, but also with my clients. I love role-playing. And this voice in my head was like, no, that offer is not good enough. You need to do it like this. You need to do it like that. And I was like, no, what is most fun for you? What would be so fun for you to talk about and work on with people and, and not thinking about how much should I charge? Does it have to be like, like, no. So that's, that's the part where I'm still working on not being so hard on myself about the perfect offer. It has to be the perfect price and the perfect this. It's like, no, am I jazzed up about it? Does this excite me? That is what matters. So I do still deal with wrestling, but it's not as far as like life choices anymore. You know, it's more like creative stuff. Yeah. Well, I ask the question is that I feel like there's a difference between like always being like a military director of your mm -hmm. mind being mm -hmm. like, this side has to shut up. You mm -hmm. got to do this thing, all mm -hmm. this stuff versus just letting it, it be and like float and then choosing which one is, you know, the difference is like, of mm -hmm. how, how was your journey? How was your, your journey with that? Like going from this, like fearful leader or or military mm -hmm. person in your mind being like what the fuck do i do all this like mm -hmm. and choking out your aggressive side mm -hmm. to just kind of peacefully coexisting with it all i talk about this in my book in the chapter i believe it's chapter seven or eight voice your resistance out loud so that's the voice the voice that i've now cultivated in my mind and what i encourage my readers to cultivate it's a voice of gentle determination i can be a military person with myself i have an Indian immigrant mother who's the oldest of five. She's a doctor. She's, I mean, she's, she's hard. She's a hard woman. My mother, she's tough as nails. I mean, she hit us growing up. If we didn't listen, she yelled at us. I mean, it was, it, it was a lot for us growing up. So I had that voice in my head, very military, very militant, very harsh. And, and my mother will be the first to admit that she has been very harsh and with us. And she went through our own stuff. My father on the other end was very, a coddling kind of man. He coddled us. I mean, my dad, he babied us. He did. He really babied us. And he was softer with us. Um, neither of those voices have helped me, right? Mm -hmm. Because my father's voice kind of let me off the hook all the time. I was like, oh, it's okay, Vasavi, because I was just coddling myself. And then my mother's voice was extremely rigid. And I'd be like, you, you dumb bitch. Like, what do you do? Like, I'd be really mean to myself. So the voice that I talk about in my book is gentle determination. It's a, it's a nice blend of both, but it's like a tamed version, right? You can be determined. You don't need to be a dick to yourself, though, mm -hmm. right? I'm determined, but I'm gentle because I think of creativity like a child. A child is not going to flourish when you're yelling at it, when you're making it feel like shit. It's going to be afraid and it's going to shut down. So the voice, it's pleasant inside my head. It's not, it's, not, um, it's not a hard place anymore. I'm not afraid of it. I can be with myself in my house, silent. No music. And I usually like keeping a little music, but I could be pin drop silence and I'm okay. And I I have prayed for this day. I have prayed for the day that I can be in silence externally and I could be working on something, reading something, even just watching a show or doing whatever and be right there and not be having all these voices in my head. So God is great. I'm happy. What yeah. does uh, gentle motivation look like? Gentle determination, determination. right? But so also, it's like it's all the motivation. Like, yeah. Like if you're like, mm -hmm. it's similar. Like if you're, you know, because you also you also write about the resist the voice of resistance mm -hmm. that, you know, when you're about to engage with a, like a meaningful task or something that would increase your connection to higher self, whether mm -hmm. it be writing a book or mm -hmm. working out or something, you're gonna have that voice of resistance, which mm -hmm. I think is the human experience. Yes. I, I call it ego A versus ego B. It's like you know the it's you versus that voice in some way, and, and it's you cultivating a reality outside that voice. Mm -hmm. So, in a way of, of 
a key in life is learning how to manage that voice mm -hmm. of, of resistance, the part that doesn't want to do things you know are good for you. So how do you use that, that gentleness to, to manage that side of yourself? So when I was writing my book, it was a two-year process. When I'd get stuck on a chapter, I would not force myself. Instead of being like, God, you're so stupid, or this or that, or like, why aren't you getting this paragraph? I'd say, Vasavi, get up, walk away, take a walk, let's come back. It's very directive. I have a very directed, it's like, it directs me. And there's no fluff to it, right? It's just a very solid, clear voice. That's the voice that guides me now. When I got to get up and I got to do this and I'm doing this. It's not like do this and do this. It's not task oriented. It's more like flow oriented, you know, but I have my structure and within that structure I can flow. But when I need motivation, when I need that motivation, as we all do, I mean, I'll just wake up every day and be like, yay, let's start the day. It's like I'm internally driven by something. Um, but that voice in my head isn't like do this, do this. It's not commanding. I don't like being micromanaged. I don't like being told what to do. Don't tell me what to do. So I have had to make the voice in my head an authority figure that I respect, right? So I'm, and I have my inner rebel, as we all do. And the thing that I had to learn was not to rebel against myself, yeah. right? The, I mean, it's great to have that rebel in you because, yes, you won't listen to anybody else. You'll, you know, you'll, you're sovereign being, blah blah blah. But like, it can get in the way when we're trying to sit down and do our work and be like, no, we don't have to do that. Oh, okay, and like it. It's you against you. So my inner authority is very much like we have work to do. Let's go, you know, and it's enjoyable. And so for me, it's an internal and external experience. Internally, I'm like, okay, let's sit down. Let's do this. And then externally, I make sure my environment supports my creativity. So it's it's a both end. I love creative projects. Like my happiest, I can't wait to write my second book. Like I love, I love deadlines. I love structure. I love working with editors. I love, I love being guided. Like my editor, when she saw the, the first draft of my book, second draft, she goes, so was this just all stream of consciousness writing? Did you, did, she goes, I, I feel like that we're just like in your head right now. And it was great. I go, okay, great. She gave me some structure and uh, that helped. Like I like being led. That's what I learned yeah. uh, being becoming a writer and now an author because there's two different things, a writer and author. Or this, this, there, there are two different roles actually. But I learned about myself that I love being led. Like, tell me what to do, I will do it. I'm ready to go. It's like, coach, put me in. You know, I'm that girl. I'm like, put me in. But what I really now, how I support myself now, is having people around me that guide me, yeah. including me guiding myself. You it's know, funny. I hate that shit. What? I hate being someone like telling me that. Like, if, if I were to give my someone a piece of writing, they're like, do this. I'd be like, shut up. Like, no, I, I no, you know, here's what it is. That's, um, I, I, I will tell you why, where I learned to be okay with someone, um, commenting on my writing. When I went back to rehab the second time, everyone knew who I was because I'd gone to the same place. It's called Recovery Unplugged here, which is music-based therapy for people in recovery. So when I walked into rehab the second time, everyone remembered who I was. And they were like, Vasavi, so great to see you. And I was like, no, I am not going to be known as some addict. This is not what God has in store for me. And I asked my counselor, Carl, and this story is in my book, by the way. I asked my counselor, Carl, what do I have to do to never come back here again? And he goes, you need to shut the fuck up and listen to us. Because clearly you don't know what you're doing because you're back here again. And I did. I shut the fuck up and I listened. And when they were like, you have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. You need to meet with your sponsor every single day. You need to go through the steps. I was like, and by the way, I don't I don't go to 12-step meetings anymore. I mean, I'll gladly speak if they ask. And I saw plenty of friends who are 12-steppers and whatever. Um, I had to find my own flavor of sobriety and recovery for me. But that has really trained me to 
be in collaboration with other people because the fact is my editor has been editing and yeah. books for years. I don't know shit, you know? And so I really do have that mentality of, I don't know. So yeah. please tell me, you know, that has helped me a lot. Having to go back to rehab the second time and having to admit my powerlessness and admit, I clearly don't know what I'm doing if I'm back here. Yeah. What do I actually know? And so I like not knowing. And I like someone who, and I don't need to be the smartest person. I don't need to have it all figured out. But when my editor, Georgia, who I love very much is like, Vasavi, this can be better. I, I can tell if someone just wants me to be better, like I could tell she wants me to be better. I'm going to listen to that instead of rebelling against it. I could tell when someone wants the best for me and someone wants the best for me and they're just trying to make me better. I'm not going to resist That's that. That's a key distinction, I think, because it's rare to find that. Most people yeah. are just an ego trip and they're putting you down no. in order yes. to get yeah. something. So it's mm -hmm. like if you see that in someone, mm -hmm. I get it. For me, it's like I rarely see that in someone. I'm, yeah. I more so catch like the egoistic dance. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not dancing with you this way. Yeah, no dancing. <laughs> I'm going to conclude this, this amazing episode with this question. If you could uh, take someone who is just starting to do this work, who's just climbing out of some bottom, who's just finding a way towards the light, mm -hmm. what's the first thing you tell them to think about, or remember, or to integrate? Like, what's the, what's your, your guiding light, your guiding philosophy, your guiding kind of go-to mantra idea that helps you climb towards the light? I tell myself, I'm going to be with me for the rest of my life. So what's the rush? I also tell myself, which my mother taught me this, you come into this world alone and you leave alone. So you better freaking love who the hell you are. You better respect yourself. You better give yourself all that you've got because it's you and you. I've chosen to be a woman who doesn't have children. Um, I'm currently not in a relationship. And so I've dedicated my life to me mm -hmm. <laughs> and being the best that I can be. So the first thing that I would tell anybody who is just on this path is, you know, you're in it for the long haul. So don't rush it. Just, you know, get to know yourself, get to know the intricacies of who you are. You are worth the time, attention, effort, and energy to get to know who you are. Great. Yeah, because I think there could be this expectation of having it all solved immediately or having all mm -hmm. the answers immediately or knowing everything immediately when it's a lifelong process. And once you become okay with that lifelong process, as you said, that's when everything opens mm -hmm. up. It's, just, it's, a, it's a long game. It's a, it's a long, patient game. And I also want to say one last thing, because there are so many gurus out there. There are so many coaches out there. No one knows better than you. Yeah. Like, no one. And I get that people have lived their own lives, and we're all putting out, I'm putting out stuff, you're putting out stuff. Take everything I say with a grain of salt. That's what I would tell everybody. I, Learn don't, to... I don't know shit. Yeah, I don't know shit. Like, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm literally just speaking from my fuck-ups. Like, please take what I say yeah. with a grain of salt. Every word that you're absorbing, you're hearing, just pause between... Hearing it, reading it, you know, and, and, and absorbing it to like, how does this apply to me? Yeah. Just ask yourself, does this apply to me? Yes or no. My father always said, people teach you two things, how to be and how not to be, right? So if someone says something, if I'm spewing out some advice, it may work for me, but you listening, you got to ask yourself, does this apply to me? Yeah. Do I, how does this feel inside of me? Do I, does it, mm, do I, because like a lot of people get caught in this trap of, oh, I listened to this guru and it's like, no, why, why did you do that? Why did you outsource your power to someone else? Stop pedestaling people, stop worshiping, stop worshiping people and start worshiping yourself. You got to remix stuff. That's what kind of noticed. So take yeah. all the ideas, take all the stuff and remix it into your own life. Like remix yeah. it into your own conception of what you think is best for yourself. Like take pieces from everyone. Don't idolize people. Just take yeah. pieces of what they have that you can take on and, and remix it into your own reality remix it i love yeah, that yeah, yeah. It's, it's a way to be so where can people find you 
and also where can they get your book once it once it comes out? When does it come out? Okay, so the book comes out May 16th. Say it out loud using the power of your voice. I always forget my subtitle. Using the power of your voice to listen to your deepest thoughts and courageously pursue your dreams. You can go to sayitoutloudbook.com. When you pre-order the book, you also get a bunch of free gifts, meditation, some mini courses. But the most exciting thing is you get a virtual ticket to my book club in June because um, everyone who gets the book will be going through it together. Three chapters a week. We're doing four sessions because I actually want to help people talk out loud. Anyone who joins my groups or any anything that I do knows I do less talking. Everyone else is, I know how to say it out loud. Y'all don't. So I let everyone else talk. Um, so that's really exciting. Say it out loud. Book book is available everywhere. Target, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Porchlight, uh, Booktopia, everywhere you get books. And you can follow me on Instagram at my name is Vasavi. Feel free to send a voice note, tag me and Lucas. Let us know that you enjoyed this episode and say it out loud. Great. Thank you very much. Thank I, you. I appreciate it.